Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Mark Ridley. Mark, would you mind giving us a 60 to 90 second background on you? Sure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, my name is Mark Ridley, and I am the owner and founder of a company called Transform Performance International. For the last 20 years or so, my colleagues and I have literally traveled the world, more than 60 countries, working with uh, leadership teams, sales organizations, and a whole range of other transformative parts of businesses to improve business performance. Our focus is, yes, around processes and tools and skills that people use, but primarily we look at the mindsets that lead to the behaviors that people display in their job. And for a long time, we've researched different ways that people relate to their environment, to the bosses they work for, to the customers they have, And we've translated that into the kind of sales behaviors that they're likely to display on the job. And as a consequence of that, I'm delighted to say that we've been publishing books now since about 2011. And uh, The Salesperson's Secret Code was one of those books that we published back at the beginning of 2018. Excellent. So, Mark, would you mind just giving us an overview of the five key areas of mindset? Sure. We approached a whole range of different companies globally. uh, We approached and ask them to provide us with some insight into their top performers and some of their lower performers. And by the way, I I use those words guardedly because we didn't say, give us your top performers and your low performers. We didn't create a comparison. What we wanted to do was to highlight what makes the best of the best, who they are and what they do. That's very important. And what we did was we interviewed literally thousands of people. We used a process called semi-structured interviewing, where we invite the interviewee just to talk about their role, how they go about it, and the kind, of, the kind of challenges and successes that they face. And out of that emerged, when you, when you put the interview transcripts through certain software, out of that emerges the patterns of the way in which the most successful people think and act and feel. And that, as you rightly say, gave us the insight into five core areas of focus that we identified in in, in salespeople, all salespeople, whether successful or less successful. And those areas are things like uh, feelings of resilience, beliefs around resilience, beliefs around how I control my success, my destiny, how I communicate, how I feel fulfilled, and how I influence events around me. So let's look at each of those areas of motivation individually. Let's start with resilience then. What is resilience built up from? Well, resilience clearly is a massive subject and good heavens, anybody watching this podcast now will know that over the last six, nine months, we've all had to show resilience in a whole range of different ways, okay? Basically, what we were saying around resilience, and again, the focus was very much through the lens of salespeople, and this was pre-COVID, but I think it's still relevant, was that resilience to salespeople was about how I cope with adversity. And that everybody in every sales situation will go through a period of, of adversity, but it's how I deal with it and how I bounce back from that adversity that is going to make or break my sales success. And actually, what we identified very early on, when you spoke to salespeople, whatever their success rate, they all said it's important to show resilience. That was a belief, what we call a destination belief that every salesperson holds. 
the difference that made the difference um, with the more successful versus the maybe the less successful was the way in which they interpret that belief. And what I mean by that is we identified two motivations which drive people towards being resilient. And one was working harder and one was working smarter. Now, they're not mutually exclusive, Marcus. It's very important that your, your listeners understand this. We're saying that actually the salesperson's secret code is around the balance of those beliefs. And if anybody wants to know what the balance of those beliefs are, they'll need to read the book. But what I will say to you is that imagine this for a moment. If you are a salesperson who said, yeah, well, all I do is I work harder to get through the tough times. Actually, that, that is not going to make you successful. That's those sales... I beg your pardon? That's working dumber. That's working dumber, absolutely. We absolutely noticed there was a correlation between those people who we were told by their organizations were more successful. There was a correlation of working harder, yes, but also working a lot smarter. But on the other hand, and this is one to bear in mind, there was a correlation between those who said, oh, it's about working smart, and it's only about working smart, those people who said, well, it's all about just working smart and who didn't actually roll up their sleeves and, get, and work that bit harder, they were not in the high performers either. So what we learned from the research was it is important to have the right balance of work hard versus work smart. One came out on top of the other. And I don't think I'm giving anything away to say that working smart was a stronger belief. But if there's anybody listening to this who says, well, it's all about working smart, I would challenge you to, to say, mm, could I be working harder? And if there's anybody out there who's working hard and feeling that they're working all the hours that God sends, well, actually, you maybe also need to be working a bit smarter. It's a balance. I think there's another really important element of this, which is that in order to work smarter, you have to ask yourself better questions in order to get better answers. and. I think if you just double down on the workload, you don't give yourself that space or the opportunity to really think through better ways. And I think one of the other observations I've made of the people who are really thriving in during COVID is that they will frequently be people who journal. They're definitely people who capture lessons. They're people who seek out help and they get a coach or training, working with my clients without, can't think of an exception uh, of anyone I've been working with for longer than six to 12 months who has anything less than 140 to 220% of quota uh, attainment. Some of the newer people, they're having to learn how to do that. But what we're finding is that by getting into those good daily habits, which build your resilience, then they're far more capable of coping. And that also, the other thing is they're also looking ahead. So it's like they've got a little crystal ball because they know that what they don't do today, they will pay for tomorrow. So they are doubling down on the prospecting. In fact, they never stopped. Within a couple of weeks of the lockdown, they were back on the phones, they were back on LinkedIn, they were back in their networks, and they were doing what they could to help Uh, They were being very supportive of their clients, but they were also asking sales-related questions and helping them their clients formulate their vision for how they were going to handle this crisis. No, I couldn't agree more. 
And a lot of these beliefs around successful sales that we discovered in the secret code, sales versus secret code are, inter, are interlinked. You would expect that. You've just spoken extremely well there to what we discovered around the beliefs around influencing. And again, think about this from a general sales perspective. We asked literally every salesperson we interviewed, do you hold certain beliefs around your ability as a salesperson to influence your marketplace, your customers, and so on and so forth? And of course, they said yes. You'd expect that. It's what we call a destination belief of all salespeople. But again, to your point, the way that people interpret that is so different. We had many salespeople who said, well, the way in which I influence is actually I make sure that I met, that I get my message across and I make sure that my customers understand that and I, and I, and I, and I give a message to market which is constant and loud and I, and I make things happen. And that is okay. But we also discovered that the most successful salespeople had a mixture of, of that attitude we actually called it a bit of the gorilla, the little bit of the beating of the chest, because I think in, in these times, especially around COVID, we all absolutely do have to shout a little bit more for airtime because everybody's at the same game. But the smart bit comes with the way in which we realized that the, the people who did exactly what you described, the people who were more guerrilla-like, who were more fleet of foot, who were more willing to network differently. fleet of foot, Mark. <laughs> I'm sure that you are t- on your tippy toes. You're just as you'll have you on Strictly or, or, or Dancing with the Stars before we know it. <laughs> I, I bought my wife dancing lessons for her birthday. Doing that again. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted. Well, no, no, you're right. I'm a bit the same there. Dear, dear me, dancing was never my forte either. But this idea that actually I need to be a bit more guerrilla-like, and we absolutely saw that within our own business. You know, my colleagues. We absolutely reframed what are we here to be now for our clients. We were in the middle of major deliveries, as I'm sure many of your clients were when, when, when COVID struck and lockdown started. We literally had to reframe what we were delivering and how we, we were delivering it in six weeks flat. And as a consequence of that, have delivered some, if I say so myself, some high quality work. But we'd never have done that without that guerrilla mindset as well as that gorilla mindset. And again, if your listeners want to understand the right balance of gorilla versus guerrilla, they can have a look at the book. But what we did notice was that the more guerrilla that people wanted to be, if they were just guerrilla without a bit of beating of the chest, they didn't succeed. And if they were all gorilla and there was no guerrilla, again, they didn't succeed. It's about so the balance. Just in broad definition, gorilla is going out the market, providing useful content, consistently and building value and a personal brand that way. Guerrilla is being adaptive to your target audience and uh, creating targeted messaging and adapting to their uh, current situation. Absolutely right. And you need both. You've got to have the confidence of your own product, your own service, your own offering. You are a case in point. You show to me beautifully that balance of gorilla because you know what you're about, but also that gorilla. You talk the language of the gorilla, and that is that's exactly what we're talking about. And I would lay a pound to a penny from what you said in terms of the people that you are dealing with who are currently successful. They will display a very similar balance. Okay, let's look at control. There are two types. There's victim and hero. So again, let's look at that and. 
let me understand why having some victim is a good thing, because that, <laughs> that's been puzzling me. It puzzled us. But I've thought about it long and hard, and I've looked at the interview notes that we had and the transcripts of the interviews, and you begin to see a pattern emerging. Have you ever seen a film called The, the Wolf of Wall Street? Exactly, um, yes. Yes. <laughs> well, it's a little bit like that. Imagine that you think that you are just the hero going out there, the lone wolf, and, you know, I can do this, and you put your underwear on outside your trousers and off you go. Right. There is a that we discovered in the research that there was a distinct danger in those who held a mindset that I will be simply just the hero because what they started to do was, from what we saw, was they started to appear selfish. They started to appear to a degree self-serving. It didn't appear collaborative. Whereas when people were held back a little bit by a fear and a mm, is this something that I actually I should be behaving like? Um, and, and, and is everything okay with me? And, and do I feel a bit miserable at times? Actually, that was okay because it seemed to temper. It seemed to temper the mindset. So we're not saying that people are going around, Marcus, going, woe is me. And it's really important to, you know, to, to moan and groan. We're not saying that at all. But what we are saying is that, again, it's that sweet spot of, of recognizing that stuff does happen and you're allowed a little bit of, maybe a little bit of, a little bit of frustration to air, maybe even a little bit of denial. But you then come around and you, and you pull your socks up and you get going. It's sort of, it's that constructive contention between those two beliefs. I think what you're describing in my world is uh, more around vulnerability, uh, yeah. humility. It's the recognition that you, uh, you can only control what you can control and the acceptance of stuff that is outside of your control. And frustrating yeah. as it is, you then have to work your way around it, through it, over it, under it. One way or another, you have to find a solution. But it's that vulnerability, the willingness to be, do what is needed, knowing that you might be hurt and recognizing yes. that it demonstrates an awful lot of courage, actually. Vulnerability is the greatest sign of courage that there is because it's not just um, you know, ripping off your armor and going into battle unarmored. It's going in there knowing that you might be hurt, recognizing that it's the right thing to do. Is that what you're describing? It's absolutely perfect analogy. I mean, look at this. Look at this way. I would defy anybody who has gone through what we've all gone through with the COVID experience, and some of us watching this may well have lost loved ones. I defy anybody to say that for a moment or two they haven't felt the victim of circumstances, because I know I have. But as you rightly say, we acknowledge that vulnerability, but it doesn't mean that it now defines me. And I'm, I, I carry that forward. I, I'm aware of it. You know, I have a father-in-law in hospital at this very moment, and we're extremely worried that he might, you know, uh, catch, catch this thing. And, we are, and the family is literally saying, what is going on? But at the same time, we're not acting as if we are victims. We are behaving as if we are heroes. We're trying, exactly as you say, to control what we control. In fact, you've hit a very hard nail on, on, on the head there, because some of, your, some of your listeners may be familiar with the concept of the locus of control. And essentially what we're talking about here is the victim versus hero uh, mindsets or belief systems are really about the hero will have an internal locus of control. 
I have the capacity to make things happen. External locus of control is okay, but if you allow yourself to be a cork on a wave, you will end up somewhere on the planet that you didn't expect. And I think that's the, that's the difference between the two. So, Mark, tell me, I'm very sorry to hear about your father-in-law, first of all. So, Thank um, you. Uh, it's going to be okay. I hope so. Tell me this, how indicative is that of a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset? I think it's very indicative. And indeed, actually, if you look at all the beliefs that we researched, uh, you know, if you take them in the round, this is all about a growth mindset. We absolutely acknowledge that at, at certain moments, it will be important to perhaps demonstrate, as we've already said, the gorilla, or perhaps to demonstrate in other beliefs, perhaps the, uh, well, the gorilla, you know, we, we have to flex. And I think the mark of a growth mindset is somebody who is very self-aware and is able to do just that and is able to, before they enter into a situation with a customer or a, maybe, they're, maybe they're thinking about uh, responding to an RFP or whatever it might be in the sales environment, it's what do I want to, what, who do I want to be? What do I want the other person to receive? What is it that I'm trying to communicate? And there may be a time for saying, actually, it is important to be a little bit more gorilla or show a little more vulnerability, as you rightly put it. And although we use the word victim, we used it very carefully. There is nothing wrong on occasion to, to say to somebody else, do you know what? I need your help. Yes, there's nothing wrong with playing the victim. But as long as you're doing it in a context where you know there is an alternative and you know that that's not a pattern which puts you into a straitjacket that you always play. People who display a growth mindset are always looking forward. They're always seeing new situations as a new opportunity. And the slate is wiped clean because they will then behave in a, in a different way. And I think that, that, is, that is so important. Although we've defined the salesperson's secret code, we absolutely acknowledge that there will be times when you'll say, well, although the code says that maybe I should be to this degree, you know, the hero or to that degree, the victim, on this occasion, I'm going to be a bit more, more hero or a bit more gorilla or, or whatever it might be. I think we may end up disagreeing over the definition of victim and vulnerable simply because <laughs> in our world, in uh, using TA, the victim is somebody who abdicates control. And uh, whereas vulnerability, absolutely asking for help is not a personality defect. I get where you're coming from. So let, let's not labor that point. No, but the only point I would come back with on that one is that if you take the balance where we have it with victim in the code, you would probably go as far as that vulnerability and an awareness that it's not all about you and there are other circumstances and other factors. If you were 100% victim, it absolutely would be about abdicating. It's not fair. It's not my fault. I can't do anything. Understood. Makes sense? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's look at the fulfillment function of uh, motivation. Mm. So there are two elements there, fear of failure and desire. Mm. So can you talk to me about those and the sort of balance that's required there? Yes, we noticed again when we when we and this is one of this was one of the first destination beliefs, fulfillment to emerge from the research when we were doing the interviews. Every salesperson we spoke to, when we said, so come on then, why are you in sales? They all spoke to a, a, a belief around being successful. 
What then emerged when we spoke to those who were the most successful salespeople, we soon realized that there was, yes, a desire to be better than I ever thought possible. But when you actually asked them, and it's a little bit like the previous discussion we had, when we said, but what is it that drives you? Is it the desire to succeed and be better than you thought you could be? Or is it a fear of failure? And in actual fact, what we noticed again with, with the most successful people, they would absolutely say, do you know what? I fully admit to a fear of failure. I fully admit to it. But it doesn't drive me and it doesn't define me, but I am aware of it. And when we looked at it again, we we used the metaphor a bit like a, a space rocket going off into space. What we realized was that when we were talking to people who were, shall we say, lower performing salespeople, you would get a reaction. You'd say, well, do you fear failure? And actually, it was the interestingly, a lot of the lower performers said, absolutely not. Why should I fear failure? And it was the successful ones who said, yeah, I absolutely acknowledge I do have a fear of failure. But we also, we also did notice in some of the lower performers that they were running away from something and never running to something. So the metaphor of the space rocket we felt was very useful. Again, think about it in these terms. You absolutely need enough escape velocity in your desire to succeed, to escape planet Earth, if you like. If you don't have enough escape velocity, your fear of failure will drag you back down and you'll crash and burn. But on the other hand, what we realized was that if you don't have that balance of fear of failure, which tempers perhaps the way your attitude to other people, your colleagues, your customers, and so on and so forth, if you don't have that, you, you spin off out of orbit into outer space and never seen again. So in order to achieve an orbit, you have to have, that, again, that balance of a desire, but also a tempered with, yeah. I do have this fear of failure. So I hope that explains, again, that constructive contention between those two beliefs. Very interesting. Yeah, very interesting indeed. Okay, and let's uh, look at the other destination, belief communication. So again, the terminology might be a little bit confusing to people, mm. uh, lightning versus thunder. Can you define lightning first? Yes, I can. Think about the person who thinks that communication from a sales context is all about I know my product, I know my service, and I literally go in there and I, I, I push it, I literally strike like a lightning bolt. It might be at the pitch, it might be in my marketing, et cetera, et cetera. It's simply that. Be brief, be bright, be gone. And there are a lot of people who think that's important. Right. Okay. So how does this relate in terms of influence? Because you were talking earlier yes. on yes. about how people were building their personal brand. Um, yes, so, so, yes. great question. So the, the link to influence, I see the communication belief in a sense as overarching, because communication is overarching anyway, isn't it? But it links to it because the gorilla, imagine you've got a gorilla who thinks that this is all about me beating my chest and sh using my personal power and my personal uh, aggression. I mean, look at you. You're a powerful chap. You know, your body language is powerful. You're you could absolutely play the gorilla if you choose to, but you don't. And I'm thinking about the communication. You use it when you need to, and I can tell that, and you're smiling. You know, you know that to be true. <laughs> yeah. But but then you've got then you've got this, this communication style on top. Um, and again, the difference is there, there are a lot of people who said that it's important to communicate succinctly, clearly, 
and they were the lightning strikers. Others, the more successful ones, said that is important, but, and it goes back to the way in which you were talking earlier on, others said, yeah, but you know what? There will be times when you think about managing your client relationships where you will be a little louder for the client and where there will be times when actually it's appropriate to back away, but you still need to be present. So you might not be in the customer's face, but you might be sending them a white paper. You might be communicating them in a more light touch way. You might send them a, a, a something you've seen on the web and say, hey, Fred, I saw this and thought of you. And you're not really doing anything other than communicating in a way that we came to call the thunder. This contrast actually came to me because I was on a walking holiday in the, in the Swiss Alps. And anybody who's been to the Swiss Alps will know, or the Alps in general, the mountains in general, will know that very often you can hear a thunderstorm. And you're thinking, good heavens, is that, in, is that here? Is that coming in my direction? But actually, it's three valleys over. But you hear that rumble and you're aware of it all the way through your walk. And yet all you've done is walk through clear blue skies. And it came to me as I thought, that is a really good metaphor for the way in which I think that we, really successful people are communicating with their, with their customers. It's constant. It's that rumbling thunder. But there are moments when you have to strike like a lightning strike. And again, it's that balance. People who are all rumble don't get noticed. All thunder don't get noticed. People who are all lightning, well, they're not seen as great uh, communicators. It's the balance that we need between the two. Make sense? Yeah. Let's just go a little bit deeper on this then. If I understand it correctly, then the Lightning is where you're effectively making your opinions heard or you're telling people, whereas thunder is made up of gentle communication, especially listening and paying full attention, being fully present when you're in front of uh, your prospect. Absolutely. And it's also having a presence when you may not necessarily be physically in the room. Again, it's thinking about how you are going to market, how you are communicating, maybe across multiple customers, as well as internally across different stakeholders within a customer. And people will have different roles that they have to play, depending on the kind of sales role that they are in. And this will resonate to some of your listeners uh, in, in more than others, depending on the role. As a general rule of thumb, I would encourage everybody to think about is my natural belief system to, to get out there and just be a lightning striker, as you say, communicate what I have to communicate and get out and go? Or am I somebody who thinks constantly about what is my message to market? Who is my market? How do I make that communication sometimes louder, sometimes, sometimes in their face, sometimes a little softer? You know, we all know that there's a gap between a lightning strike and hearing the thunderclap. Sometimes it's important that the lightning strike and the thunderclap are close together. Other times it may be more important that the lightning strike happens, but the thunderclap follows a few minutes later. Or as I've already indicated, sometimes it's important that we don't even see the lightning, but we hear the thunderclap rumbling in the distance. So this is a good argument for establishing as part of your playbook and part of the cadence of communication within an account, regular touch points. So a couple of things that I teach, a recon call is where every couple of weeks within an A account, every few months within a B account um, or a C account, you have them remind you of what you agreed to speak about between now and the last time or why they brought you in originally. 
evaluate what's not working so that they can tell you what they're not happy with. Have them tell you what they are happy with, what's changed for the better as a result of your working with them, where the opportunities are and what the next steps are so that you maintain uh, a regular touch. Also having as part of your agreement and a mandated part of your relationship with an account is that you do quarterly reviews. And those quarterly reviews are based on levels of accountability, which have been agreed at the outset. And they may evolve, they may change, but they must be within your control. And net result of that is that you hold one another to account. So you behave more like partners than vendor and buyer. Would that be fair? Oh, I couldn't agree more. And that's that. And if you combine the thunderer, the thunderclap with, say, for example, the guerrilla, you begin to see a, a, that kind of pattern emerging. But I also recognize, for example, you say the quarterly review. I often say to people when I'm, when I'm working with them is, you know, you've got to use those opportunities to claim credit for a job well done and make sure that you're pointing out to your clients or your customers that this has worked well. Don't make the assumption that they get it. So that might be the very moment where I would say, in my parlance, it's time for a lightning strike. Aha, got it. Okay, very, very interesting. So let's then look at how you can get people ready for change. You've got a lovely process in the secret code of pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance, and termination. Do you mind taking us through that process to help us understand how to apply what you learn from the code? Yes. Without going through every stage, there are six stages to this, but let's put it in broadest terms. Let's ask anyone who's listening to this uh, discussion now. If you think about something in your life in general or in your sales practice in particular, what thought have you already given to making any changes? If the answer honestly would be, well, I haven't really, or uh, you can see that you're in that sort of pre-contemplation space, that, that moment where you're thinking, I didn't even realize I had to make a change. So each of us will be in those at a different point in that cycle. We, will, we may well have people listening to, well, yeah, you know what, Mark? You know what, Marcus? I've been thinking about some things for a while, but I hadn't really given it a great deal of thought. That's when you're in that early process of changing or being ready to make a change. So I think the, the thing I would generally say to anybody listening now is th- take two or three things about your sales practice. Two or three things only. Don't overload yourself. And it may be a discussion that you've been having with your line manager. It may be something that your customers, your clients have been making you aware of lately. It may be that there's been some kind of product shift or something like that. Or it may be more generally related to how you're approaching your sales practice in this COVID, this post-COVID world. Any, it doesn't really matter what it is, but take those things. And then just ask yourself, to what extent um, have I identified what change might be necessary? In other words, have I given myself a vision of what the new might be? Because you can only do that if you understand where you are today and where you want to get to. And people who make change successfully fundamentally will just begin to create a new habit for themselves, a new step in in the right direction. I'm on a little bit of a losing weight campaign at the moment. And, you know, I want to lose, frankly, I want to lose 10 kilos. I think Um, I must have found it. (laughs) 
And I am literally saying to myself, you know, and I realized about six weeks ago that actually I hadn't been losing weight because I wasn't ready to make the change. But I am ready to make the change. And in the last, in the last couple of weeks, I've actually lost three kilos. And it's just the habit. It's the small steps. And I'm not asking for um, a golden halo to magically appear when you edit this podcast. But what I am saying is that unless you are determined that you want to be the change, then it won't happen. So simply say to yourself, what two or three things do I want to have differently? And how can I begin to make small steps? One of the things that we look at in the book, Marcus, is we say, look, why don't you look around and model excellence in others? And all around us, there are great examples of sales excellence. You know, um, we've, we in my business, we've already started to learn from you. We're already observing what you are doing. And it doesn't mean to say that I can become you or you can become me, but there must be really good people in your sales world, anybody who's listening to this, who say, do you know what? I like the way they do that or they like the way they say that. So why not ask them how they do it? You know, this goes back to being a guerrilla. Ask them how they do it. They may say to you, do you know, I had no idea that I even did it. So actually, those, those kind of conversations begin to improve everybody's practice. There's a process that you can go through, but I would, I would absolutely say, don't, don't bite off more than you can chew. Be aware of the three or four things that you want to change. Take small steps and begin to model what you see in excellence in others. That would be my advice. It's excellent advice. And certainly, I mean, one of the things, the steps that I took a couple of years ago was uh, developing the podcast. Mm. And it's been really fascinating because the, the objective of the podcast was to meet really interesting people and learn from them. And I cannot even begin to thank or tell you how much I've learned. I can't thank you know, my guests enough because the speed with which I've been able to evolve my thinking has been breathtaking and the ability then to combine join the dots from enterprise and channel and then management and leadership looking at recruitment looking at personal development the psychology of it all and tying all these things together i can't stress enough I mean, one of the things i always teach my younger clients is that um, they should take the time to seek out people whose history is their future and reach out to them and ask them if they would be willing to be their mentor. And the contract goes something like this. Mark, I was wondering if I could reach out to you for some help. Your history is my future. I, I see you as being somebody who's already achieved what I hope to achieve. And I was hoping that you would be willing to invest 20 minutes to half an hour a month I promise I will never waste your time and I will always come prepared. And I will always come with one question that I've tried to resolve, but I can't on my own. And then maybe you can give me some direction and ask me some questions to help me resolve it myself. Would you be open to doing that? Now, most people ignore I think that's a fantastic approach. It's a wonderful approach if you do it, but it always revolves around people taking that action. And what's interesting is the number of people who will say yes, if you bother to do this. And there are lots of people out there as a, a species of herd primates, uh, social primates, we derive enormous satisfaction from helping others of our species. And you'd be amazed at just how many people will say yes to that. So if you really want to evolve, and um, if you haven't done it during COVID, do it now as um, you know, we're maybe hitting our third spike. And 
it will really transform how you perceive yourself, how you perceive your work, and it'll improve your performance in, immeasurably. Your thoughts? I couldn't agree more. And it's back to growth mindset, of course. That's an absolutely growth mindset uh, writ large. We were amazed when we started researching the, the secret code uh, work back in at the end of 2015. Um, it took us ages to, to do it. Um, when we started that research, we thought, where are we going to get this data? But the minute we said to various organizations, we need your help, they said, of course, providing it's done in the right way, providing it's anonymized, providing et cetera, et cetera. But people were just willing to help. And what frustrates me, and I've often said it to my co-authors, and um, you may be aware, we've also just recently published another secret code book on, on leadership. And the only reason that you and I met was because as a result of that. And I've already said to one of my partners, darn it, I wish we'd met Marcus earlier because he could have been in the book. It's this constant growth in people that you meet and the way in which they make you think, you know, that, that you think, God, I'm so lucky to be in this world of sales that we're in. And it's not just about us trying to sell our products and services. I, I firmly believe that, you know, and I've been in sales now since uh, literally uh, 1984, uh, when I started my career. Even longer than me. Uh, I firmly believe that when we've, we created this ecosystem of people who absolutely do want to take from each other, learn from each other, but also help each other. I've never yet come across a customer who didn't want to help me when I said, can you help me? Be it for a reference or a referral or something like that. And again, to my mind, that is the guerrilla mindset. That's the work smart mindset. That's the thunder communication style. It's the desire to be better than I thought possible. It's all, they're all interlinked. You know, these great sales practices are, are are all visible. And I, and I look back through my own career. And, and by the way, when I did the salesperson secret code, I didn't align to the perfect numbers. You know, I, I, none of us, very few of us are perfect. But it's all about taking a snapshot view of yourself in a sales environment and saying, right, today, what little thing can I do better? What little thing can I do differently? Who can I speak to that I wouldn't have necessarily spoken to? And I'm doing another podcast this evening. And I, I never thought that I'd be doing that as, as, as long as I lived and breathed. We are very lucky in our sales profession and we should make the most of it. You talk about your, your past, is, your history is my future. I love the way that John Maxwell puts it. You may well be familiar with the work of John Maxwell. And he has a wonderful saying, which I carry with me. It's about attitude. And he says, your attitude is the librarian of your past, the speaker of your present and the prophet of your future. And I firmly <laughs> believe that. That's a fabulous quote. I should yeah. be borrowing that. Yeah, please and, do. Not mine. Okay. So, Mark, tell me this, in terms of management, mm. because one of the areas that frustrates me massively is the paucity of high-quality sales management. Yeah. And what I'm curious about is how can managers work in partnership with their salespeople in order to better improve the way they coach, they develop their people. And uh, actually, also, if you could speak to onboarding. I'm really glad you asked me that question. So let's deal with the first point first and the quality of sales management. And you're absolutely right. You know, it frustrates me because I always feel that I'm knocking our own industry, having just supported it. What frustrates me is that so often we have examples of people who are great at sales who end up in some kind of leadership role 
who firmly believe that the behaviors they exhibited in being a successful salesperson mean that they will be a successful sales manager, stroke coach, sales or sales leader. And it just isn't. I think I would say to anybody in a sales leadership role, think very carefully about why you are there. What is it that you, that you are doing for your organization that has caused your business to say, can you move from a purist sales role? You might still have some kind of quota carrying uh, objectives, but why is it that I now have accountability and responsibility for these people as well? One of the reasons we decided to research the salesperson secret code was because we were frustrated at the number of times we saw organizations trying to upskill salespeople. How many programs on questioning skills, listening skills, account planning methodology, strategic selling, blah, 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 blah. How many times have we all gone through those kind of programs, worthy though they are? But why doesn't anything change? In our opinion, one of the things that we wanted to put into the debate was the fact that actually we're not asking people why people do what they do. We weren't operating at what we call the highest levels of influence. When you operate at capability and skills, that's okay. But what you will tend to end up doing is performance managing. How many meetings did you have with customers last week? What is the size of your pipeline? What's your average deal size, et cetera, et cetera. Supervising. Pardon? Supervising. Supervising. When it comes to actually being an inspirational coach, you need to elevate the conversation to the level of belief. So you can say, for example, if you've got somebody who's done a, a salesperson secret code psychometric, I'm really interested to explore, dear colleague, this balance that you've got between this, for example, gorilla versus guerrilla or lightning versus thunder or whatever it might be. Let's talk about that. And how does that then relate into the way in which you are using the tools and skills and resources that the organization is providing? Classic example is something like CRM. I mean, how many salespeople honestly fight around the, the use of, of, of CRM? I mean, it's, it's a constant battle. And part of the reason I would contend is that people are told to do this. I've got to do my sales force or whatever it might be. But they, aren't, they, they don't have a discussion as to why that's important and how it links to the organization's goals and objectives. And that's when you start to work at the belief set. Because between behaviors and skills that we were talking about, sales behaviors and skills, and the vision as to what we want to be as salespeople, as an organization, and so on and so forth, you have got these beliefs, mindsets that we are talking about here and that we are addressing in the salesperson secret code. On the CRM front, there's a really simple problem, which is that they started looking at the wrong end of the problem. CRM has been implemented in order to support an audit function in yes. sales. Yes. And that's where uh, yes. the problems really start. That's the subject of a much longer <laughs> a debate. But yes. Um, uh, but you're absolutely right. That goes back to identity. The why are we doing this? Absolutely. And what we have is a belief system which runs counter to the behavior. And that's why salespeople and organizations have this constant fight because the behavior is not congruent with the belief. Well, and to pick up on your earlier point about uh, bashing our profession, in all honesty, it needs it. It's not a profession. It should be. It's the oldest profession. But unfortunately, it's been turned into this thing that is transactional, Selfish, I centered. 
it, you know, and you mentioned listening training. In all honesty, that almost never happens. And when it does, it's a, it's a tactical thing. And if you treat any, any technique as a tactic, then it's manipulative and it's you doing something to someone to serve your own selfish ends. And if you don't understand the fundamental principles of why we do things, then you're going to find yourself come unstuck because the buyer will feel that. We are highly attuned to the intent of others. And our limbic system is what kept our ancestors alive long enough for us to breed and uh, produce offspring. And the reason we exist is because of this highly attuned bullshit detector and uh, threat detector. And any salesperson who uses technique as a tactic will inevitably struggle. If they use technique as a means to serve the other person, if they use technique with the principles that underpin it, I see this a lot in my own uh, area of sales training. My average client will typically grow 100, 300, 500, 800% in a year. When I look at what passes for average in sales training, 10 to 30% is considered good. But I spend 90% of my time training people about the fundamental psychological principles and values that underpin it, and then teach the technique. And when they stop using the technique as a weapon, and instead they use it as a shield to protect both sides, then you see much greater advances. I agree with everything you've said. It's music to my ears. And again, you're, what you're doing is you're connecting. And again, let's just unpack for the listener what Marcus just did. He linked a behavior to a belief system. And that is exactly why this research into the secret code is so important. Example would be, let's take, oh, I hate it when the industry talks about objection handling. That makes me so angry. Yeah. yeah? So there's a classic example. A gorilla will see objection handling if it's over, overarched, o- overdone as a, as, as, a, as a technique. A guerrilla wouldn't even use the term objection handling, but would still apply some of the approaches to help their customer understand. And handle and that's, their own objections. Yeah. And neutralize yeah. the objection themselves. Yeah. yeah. So th- this then points to something else that you touched on, Mark, which is the absolute lack of training that goes on in management. Management only receives 3% of the training budget globally. Now, if you don't train managers, if you don't give future managers a runway to learn their craft, their natural instinct is to do what was done to them. They will inevitably do what was done to them, or they will do what they think needs to be done, which is typically beat their chest, pound on the table, get people to work harder and dumber. They will measure things that don't matter, like lag indicators, uh, (laughs) revenue, and profit. Those things are important to measure, but they don't give you anything useful in order to be able to move the trajectory of uh, your direction of your current sales uh, activity. You should be focused on leading indicators, not number of dials, but number of unique effective conversations per day. You should be focused on the velocity of deals, not the number of demos, not the number of proposals. You should be focused on the number, uh, the volume of qualified opportunities that are moving into the closable phase and being rigorous and ruthless in the definition of what those are 
and also being really careful not to try and sell to people who are outside of your ideal customer profile because you just buy a bad business. And the metric that I'm focused on on top of that is the number of first meetings, qualified first meetings, moving to qualified second meetings because so many salespeople turn up and then blow seven out of eight. That's the average failure rate from first to second meeting. And that's a travesty when you consider how much money is wasted in marketing lead generation and prospecting time, blood, sweat, and tears. Uh, And you get in front of a prospect because you're unprepared and you don't manage to convert a first meeting into a second meeting. This comes back to training and developing your managers, giving them at least a 12 to 18 month runway to learn how to do their craft. So getting future managers involved in mentoring and uh, coaching, having them lead sales meetings, having them get involved in the forecasting, having them involved in the interviewing and recruitment process, having them hold people to account. All these skills are critically important. And if you don't know how to do them on day one and you're having to wing it, then chances are you will lose a good salesperson and gain an atrocious manager. That's a double whammy. So tell me this, what what are you being influenced by? What what are you reading, watching, listening to at the moment? Well, at the moment for me, to be frank with you, what what I have decided not to do, I've thought long and hard about this. I wonder if you'd ask me. I've decided, first of all, what I'm not going to be influenced by. And that might sound a bit bit perverse to say what I'm not being influenced by, but I I would say, There is so much going on at the moment. Pick your sources wisely. Very good. Um, And I, I, you know, I was thinking about this conversation we were going to have over the weekend because, you know, this is going out later, but Marcus and I are talking on a Monday morning. And I was thinking about this conversation over the weekend. And I flicked through the different news channels on my uh, cable network. And I saw so many different perspectives. One minute the world is doom and gloom. The next minute it's all happy. I think I would say what I'm what I'm doing very much at the moment. I am using a few trusted trusted sources, but not necessarily sources which agree with me, and that's important. So I am I'm reading a range of different news news outlets, uh, watching those, and I think that's important because I think for all of us at the moment, we need to look in our sales world as if we are abreast of of the situation and know what's going on and and so on and so forth. In terms of books, I'm going to give Marcus a plug. I am just about to start Marcus's book on channel sales. So that, Marcus, is my next book. I thank you for pointing me in that direction. I haven't read it yet. I've just read the first few pages, but I intend to read that one over the next, over the next couple of weeks. But I can tell you it looks really interesting. I, I highly recommend it. So <laughs> I thought you might, but seriously... You know, when I'm listening to what you've said now, and anyone listening to this podcast now, I think the message to all of us is be really clear about what it is that you can offer the market and stick to your knitting. Don't get too distracted. Believe in what it is that you are, that you are selling and what you've got, what you have to offer. I think at the moment, it would be very easy with all these different bits of white noise, as I call it, that's going on to be distracted and to worry, sugar, are we doing this right? Is this the right kind of thing? So, oh, and the other book that I have picked up and I'm using a lot at the moment is the book by Professor John Whitmore on coaching. And that has been one of my Bibles over the recent years. I believe it's called Performance Coaching. 
or coaching performance. I haven't got it in front of me at the moment, but anybody looks up Sir John Whitmore and I'm reading the edition in, uh, that was published in 2017, just after, unfortunately, um, uh, Sir John Whitmore died, unfortunately, but a really good book on helping people think about coaching. I'd strongly recommend the Sales Coaches Playbook by Bill Bartlett as well. It's uh, been specifically designed for sales coaching. Bill's uh, got some wonderful models in there that are highly effective. And I think one of the most important principles there is the three Ps, which are permission, protection, and potency. And it's how you establish the ground rules for how you coach. So permission means that both sides are allowed to say their piece. Protection means that you're not going to punish the salesperson for saying what they believe, giving their truth. And potency is about empowering them so that you have equal stature between coach and coachee. And that you, whilst you have different roles, in that conversation, uh, you are equals. And the objective is to help the other person achieve their potential. Um, so your role as the coach is to draw that out of them. And uh, the role of the coach is coachee is to be fully present, fully prepared, and open to improving and developing. And it's it's a wonderful model. Oh, I like that. Excellent. That's, that sounds excellent. Yeah, I really like that. I, I particularly like the point about having that contract in place between the two and and the idea of what i will call um you you talk uh, like psychological safety yeah. that 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 moment where both parties understand that in a sense what's said in vegas stays in vegas Absolutely. but it work, it works to the benefit of of both parties i think that's so important it's trust isn't it at the end of the day absolutely and th- th- i think the the point that a lot of people miss from being a coach is just how much you learn from the people you are coaching. And the whine that I hear from managers so often is, oh, well, I don't have time to coach. Well, you don't have any bloody time to coach because you're not coaching. That's the first thing. And you will learn and improve and develop massively by being a good coach and a consistently uh, consistent coach. So you need to have a cadence of coaching, half an hour a week at least, and interim coaching for example, in ride-alongs and those kind of things, you need to be putting in about three hours of coaching per rep per month. Absolutely. I, I mean, I always say between three three to five if you can get it in. But here's the thing, I, this, and here is the discussion I have so often with, with sales leaders. They say, but I haven't got time to prepare. And I'm going, whoa, whoa, guys. First of all, if you're on top of your business, in terms of the figures and the numbers, it's unlikely there's much prep time required anyway. And secondly, if you are having to prepare your line-by-line conversation, that's not coaching. That's almost back to sort of performance management. And I always say that the best coaches go into an interaction. You know, you talk about a ride-along. You don't know what's going to happen. So go along in a state of what I call unknowing and curiosity and deal with it in the moment. And as you rightly say, Marcus, you as the coach will probably learn a lot more about the customer your coachee, and dare I say, even yourself, because you don't know how you're going to respond. You could be facing a situation you'd never faced before. So I think that excuse about, well, I don't have time to coach, it's not an excuse. That's victim mindset. Uh, absolutely. And, and you know, a, a really simple solution might be get a coach. But hey, yeah. um, okay, what, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with yourself, Mark? Great question. I think at the moment, 
the biggest the biggest struggle I'm facing is in terms of what I want to do with my business. And um, it's not that I haven't got a clear view for where I want to go, but I'm at a point in my career, and I think I would, anybody would recognize this, is, is where do I want to be in three to five years' time? And I'm going through that process at the moment of visioning what I want for myself as well as what I want for my business. So it's a personal thing. So at the risk of inviting you to coach me, I became a grandfather for the second time a couple of months ago. And I'm sort of looking at it and thinking, hmm, you know, there's more to life than just focusing on the business. You know, the grandkids are there and my family is there. And, and I'm, I'm, so I'm struggling is maybe too strong a word, but I'm looking at how I recalibrate my work-life integration at the moment. And that's my personal challenge. And I've got, also got a wife who is, is beginning to say to me, come on, Mark, when are we going to start slowing down? So I've got to think about the needs of my business and the needs of my personal life. That's my struggle, if it is a struggle at the moment. Have you taken a look at your blind spots? That's a great question. And you made me pause because you've just made me realize I'm not entirely sure I, I, I recognize what my blind spots are at the moment, which is why they're blind spots. Okay, let's have a chat offline about that because that's yes. a critical area. Because if you know what the blind spots are, then chances are you can stop um, being tripped up by them. Okay, Mark, tell me this. You've got a golden ticket. You can go back and you can advise the idiot Mark age 23. Mm. And it's not about regret. It's just about a choice bit of advice. What would you advise 23-year-old Mark to share some wisdom? My advice would be, be yourself and don't be afraid um, to go for what you want. When I was, tw- again, this is not a regret, but when I was 23, I probably was too respectful of authority, too expecting that when I did a job well, others would notice and therefore I would be rewarded for that. So I think I would say if I was advising my 23-year-old self, learn what I've learned over the years, which is be proud of who you are, go for what you want. And, you know, without being a bolshy, arrogant git, don't take no for an answer. I mean, again, apply emotional intelligence, but, you know, be single-minded in what you want. I think that's very fair advice. I think I was probably the other end of the spectrum and I I thought I knew everything and finding that happy balance there. But uh, again, be yourself, just be true to yourself. And understand clearly that you are not the finished article at 23, at 59, or at 70. There is always room for growth. And that was one of the uh, gifts that I got very early on in my uh, university career, because I started a little business there. And that's where I started to learn to become a very aggressive learner. And there hasn't been a day gone by since I was about 22 when I haven't had at least one to six hours of self-study, either reading or listening, and thank God for the internet and how that's grown, because it's just been brilliant. You know, we have the sum total of human knowledge at our fingertips, but you do have to be judicious about your sources. But I think study widely, develop an eclectic education, and Audible has been brilliant. There's a, a company called The Great Courses, which produced oh, some fabulous university-level uh, lectures. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've studied everything from the mineral evolution of Earth to evolutionary biology 
to the history of China from uh, 4000 BC to mm. uh, Chairman Mao um, and everything in between. And it's just fascinating what's available. But having an, a, a broad range of knowledge and a wide range of reference allows you to draw on different learnings and draw them all together. And that's very, very powerful because being able to connect the seemingly unconnected is a rare and powerful skill set. I think that's so true. And I, I may not be quite as voracious as you are. I mean, you seem, you seem incredibly voracious and kudos to you. But I agree about these different sources. And as I said earlier, be judicious in your sources. But I did something the other day, which again, it's put yourself out there and put yourself into a, outside your comfort zone. I'm an Amazon customer, as many of us are. And I joined something the other day because Amazon sort of was pushing at me, something called Twitch. And basically, I had no idea what this is, but basically, I have, I'm now following gamers. And I'm not a gamer. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bloke of a certain age. Yeah. And now I've been following people who are broadcasting all these different things about gaming. And I'm learning so much about what they talk about, how, how they think. I'm seeing how we can begin to think about gamification of the learning that we do within our own business. And if I hadn't done that, I would never have been exposed to it. And it would have been just, a, to use your word, a blind spot to me. Well, check out a company called Selemi, C-E-L-E-M-I. And um, they have, essentially, they're a, a gamification training company that have been going since the 1970s. And in fact, they've changed the way the Swedish education system works. And they teach people about how to read balance sheets using games. They teach people how to manage using games and leadership using games. Uh, really fascinating. And the retention rates when you gamify are massively high. But also people have fun. And the, the real uh, joy of that type of approach is that most of the learning is already around the table or in the room. Yes, and It's not about you standing up in front of a group of people and broadcasting, which is a habit that I've gotten into and I've got, got to get out of. How can people get hold of you? LinkedIn is a really good way. You know, look up Mark Ridley on LinkedIn. You will find you will find me. Uh, our website is um, www.transformperformance.com. It's all one word: transform performance. And of course, please feel free to um, reach out on Twitter. I'm also Mark Ridley TPI on Twitter. But also, um, please, you know, if uh, if anybody wants to um, read the books or anything like that, um, you'll find all those that information, all the addresses uh, in in the books, which are also available from Amazon and also is available on Kindle and all that kind of stuff. Fabulous. Mark Ridley, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So this is Marcus Kauke once again, signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed the conversation, then please like, comment and share, and please do subscribe. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can get me on marcuskauke at me.com or Marcus at laughs, L-A-U-G-H-S hyphen last, L-A-S-T dot com. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then please pop me an email or ping me a note on LinkedIn and connect us. Thanks a lot. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.